Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, we just heard President Trump uh give his prepared remarks uh, to the United Nations uh, to get the latest on kind of some feedback on kind of what we heard from President Trump's comments. We welcome Celia Mosin, U.S. Treasury reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Celia, thanks so much for joining us. What were your initial thoughts of uh, President Trump's speech before the United Nations? Well, he talked a lot about uh, giving a anti-globalist message there. I mean, that's what we heard. We talked, we heard about America's unrivaled military might. We heard him talk about um, not accepting a bad deal with China, that globalism has caused past leaders to ignore their national interests, and that uh, every country has a right to defend their borders, and that anyone who reaches the U.S. will be turned away. So it was a little bit of a divisive message uh, to a group of leaders who are trying to work multilaterally. I think that it would be important to talk about the delivery a little bit, because you're saying that it was a divisive message, and he did talk about uh, abortion, and he talked about a lot of things. Um, but I'm just wondering what you thought about his delivery. I mean, look, it went on for longer than it was supposed to, as a lot of uh, U.N. speeches do. Um, it was a little bit stilted. He was reading from a teleprompter in the beginning. It was very spirited, talking about um, China and talking about, um, you know, sort of globalism and what it's done. But it did sort of toward the end, um, whether he got tired, you know, this is not his uh, where he naturally uh, tends to, um, you know, really grab people's attention in these prepared teleprompter speeches. He's a little bit more passionate when he's speaking off the cuff. And Celia, just also, he kind of spent a fair amount of time on Iran, um, kind of making, uh, maintaining a very strong posture as it relates to U.S.-Iranian uh, relations. It was a strong posture, uh, but the threat of war was absent from his remarks. He said he wants peace. He does not want war with anybody. So it, to me, it did signal uh, that the door to peace is still open. He said the fresh sanctions will not be eased unless they change behavior rather than saying, you know, we're going to, um, you know, lean more into this. Saleh Mohsen, thank you so much for being with us. Saleh Mohsen is Bloomberg News U.S. Treasury reporter joining us from Washington, D.C. on the phone following the U.N. address. It is Climate Week. We've seen the protests in New York City and worldwide cities as people ramp up the pressure to fight some of the effects of some of the changes that we've been observing here in the studio. Is Joey Bergstein, he's Chief Executive Officer of Seventh Generation, normally uh, headquartered in Burlington, Vermont, but here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, in part for these climate talks that have been going on. So, can you give us a sense of what you've been doing this week? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. We kicked off Climate Week probably about a month ago um, <laughs> when we decided that we really needed to help lift up 
the voices that are all, all around the need to take urgent and immediate action um, and decided that we would not only close down our offices for the climate strike that was on last Friday, the global climate strike, and participate in that, but actually donate a whole week of our national television advertising time to 350.org so that they could really amplify the voices of the, the youth movement, which is absolutely unbelievable, the amount of momentum they've been able to create around that. So uh, we want to amplify the voice around the need to change. Um, I spent the day yesterday uh, at the, with the UN Global Compact. Uh, we were honored along with 86 other companies that have so far taken a or made a real commitment to take the actions needed to address the need to limit uh, climate change to 1.5% by 2030. And we were so proud to be part of that group. Um, but even more importantly, I was so impressed with the fact that these companies together represent $2.3 trillion worth of sales. So this is not yeah. a, a group of small companies <laughs> that are raising their voices like you might expect. There's a real tipping point. And we really want to, to continue to help and see this movement tip and become real and see the same consensus amongst uh, business and amongst policy leaders that we're seeing in the, the world amongst climate scientists for the need to, to, to really address climate change. So at Seventh Generation, just give us a sense of kind of the products you have and kind of how consumers actually interact with them. Sure. Uh, so we make a whole range of eco-friendly home and personal care products. I always say that we do much more than just make these products. We're really trying to change the way the business is done. So as a proud B Corporation, we're committed to the triple bottom line of people, planets, and profits. Okay. Um, and we take our, our philosophy that inspired our name from the great law of the Iroquois, that in our every deliberation, we must take into account the impact of our decisions on the next seven generations, um, into the way that we create our products. And so we create products that are made from plant-based ingredients and not petroleum-based ingredients. So we ensure that all of our packaging is recycled, not just recyclable, but actually made from 100% recycled content. Um, so we think really deeply about every single thing that we make. And, you know, this company was founded over 30 years ago around these principles and have been proudly trying to address the needs of the world that we find ourselves in today. Um, and so everything we designed is really designed thinking about the world that's around us and how we can lower the, our impact on the world around us. And have you seen sales uh, increase at a rapid pace? Yeah, the business is doing incredibly well. So the market's responding. We've been growing really well. We're um, in the midst right now of a global expansion, um, which is incredibly exciting. Have you seen a lot of competitors try to come in with a similar message that could potentially uh, be both a threat to your brand, but albeit perhaps encouraging on the other side of things? Yeah, I would say, gratefully, we're seeing a lot of competition in uh, the markets that we compete in, which is, which is really exciting. Um, we were alone for a long time. More and more brands are coming in. There are more and more the, the largest players in the markets are introducing more eco-friendly versions of, of the major brands. And for sure, that creates more competition. But it also pushes us to continue to innovate and to identify how can we continue to lead forward and drive our sustainability mission more and more aggressively over time. How tough is it for you guys to get shelf space? Um, are, are the 
supermarkets and other re retailers, are they open to your product? Do they recognize that it's a growth area or is it, you just like everybody else, you got to fight tooth and nail for shelf space? Like everybody else, we fight, we fight for the space, but we do it through real partnership. And we've built great partnerships with a number of the different retailers around the country uh, and really helping them to develop the, the quote unquote natural business uh, on their store shelves. They recognize increasing demand. And actually, if you look at the categories we compete in, the vast majority of the growth in those categories is coming from brands like Seventh Generation. What's the next innovation in, uh, in your business? The one I'm the most excited about right now is we, we just launched a ultra-concentrated laundry detergent. Um, we call it the Easy Dose Laundry because it's super convenient. The same number of doses, 66 doses, but in a 23-ounce bottle instead of a big 100-ounce bottle. So it is 70% uh, uh, 75% lighter, it's 60% less plastic, 50% less water, so you're not shipping as much, um, as much around, the, uh, around the continent. Um, and for consumers, it has this automatic dosing feature that makes it super easy to, to do your laundry. Joey Bergstein, thanks so much for joining us. Joey Bergstein is CEO of 7th Generation, based in Burlington, Vermont, but joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking to us about uh, environmentally safe products uh, and sustainability. Well, in an unprecedented and sweeping rebuke to the premier, the Supreme Court's 11 judges found that Boris Johnson had given Queen Elizabeth II, quote, unlawful advice to suspend the legislator. To get the latest on this ever-evolving story, we turn to Edward Evans, European columnist for Bloomberg News. Uh, he is in our London studio. So, Edward, just give our American audience at least a sense of how important, how unprecedented uh, this move is by the Supreme Court of the U.K., well, you have to understand the Supreme Court in the UK is very different from the Supreme Court in the US. The judges here are far more reluctant to get involved in overtly political questions and have much more limited powers in what they can do. So really to come out today as they have done and say that Johnson's prorogation of Parliament was illegal and that it cannot stand is truly unprecedented. This is uh, a, a, effectively a, a legal hand grenade thrown very directly at Boris Johnson and he has come out fighting. He's vowed to go on and force the UK out of the European Union with or without a deal next month and there are no and he is resisted calls so far to resign. So the idea of him resigning, the argument that Boris Johnson cannot remain as prime minister after this ruling, can you explain the logic there? Uh, two things. Uh, the, uh, it is unprecedented for a prime minister's advice to the Queen to be ruled illegal, effectively misleading the monarch uh, in the British system is about as bad as it gets for a prime minister. But more practically, without the right to prorogue parliament, he really has no control over the legislature. He doesn't command a majority. He doesn't command control over the parliamentary timetable. And he can't now even stop parliament from sitting. This is a government in office but not in power. Now, his escape route would normally be to call an election, but since the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act of 2011, he can't do that without the support of at least two-thirds of MPs. And so far, they've said no. So, Edward, it appears that uh, Boris Johnson is going to fly back to London from New York this evening, perhaps cutting his trip a little bit short yeah. to deal with this issue. When he gets to Parliament tomorrow, what happens? 
Parliament will resume sitting tomorrow morning. There won't be Prime Minister's question time, as there usually is on a Wednesday, but he can expect to face urgent questions for lawmakers, from lawmakers now over what he does for over Brexit. You may also see lawmakers trying to put down their own uh, measures um, to stop a no-deal Brexit. Now, Boris Johnson has, of course, uh, got a slight problem in that lawmakers have stopped him, essentially, uh, legally from leaving the European Union on October 31st without a deal. If that's the situation, he'll be forced to seek an extension. Their great fear was that by using prorogation, Boris Johnson would try and stop them from 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 stopping him, essentially, from le- doing just that, leaving without a deal. Now that Parliament is back, you can expect them to take a very close interest in what he's doing and take every legal trick in the book to box him into a corner here. What kind of support does Boris Johnson have within his own party? That's a very good question. Um, Don't forget, this is a man who lost 21 MPs after they voted uh, against him. He does not. He's 40 short of odd members short of a majority. This is somebody who is commanding a minority government. That said, what you've seen under Boris Johnson is the Tory party turn itself essentially into a Brexit party. And with those supporters, this appears to be popular. Don't forget that the whole narrative that he's trying to set up is the is the establishment denying you, the people, the democratic choice that you made in the referendum. So you have this essentially parliament versus people election. And the, the, the point here is that this, if you look at where Boris Johnson is in the polls right now, He's ahead. He's, you know, Jeremy Corbyn uh, is trailing him in the polls. He's about, I think, three points below um, former Labour leader Michael Foote in 1983, which was Labour's worst defeat, I think, in the 20th century. Um, So that is that is the political situation for Boris. Edward, it's, uh, you know, it seems like uh, Boris Johnson has lost almost at every single turn here, whether it's rulings from the courts or just rebukes from Parliament. It hasn't really had any material wins. Is there a way for him out of this? An election is the way out for him uh, in the longer term. Ultimately, with this, nothing changes until the parliamentary arithmetic changes because Boris Johnson hasn't got control of the situation, but he knows what he wants. Parliament has got control of the situation, but doesn't know what it wants. It's opposed to leaving without a deal, but beyond that, there's no agreement. So to get out of, to, to essentially resolve this situation, Johnson needs to get to an election or he needs to get a deal a, a deal agreed with other EU leaders. Now, they've got no incentive to give him any kind of concessions, given that they can see Parliament is dead opposed to Britain leaving without a deal. So, it's, again, it all comes down now, I think, to an, election, an extension of the EU negotiations and then an election. And the pound is up, which just, you know, shows that (laughs) (laughs) where we're we're at this point. Edward Evans, thank you so much for being with us. Edward Evans is European columnist uh, and Brexit editor for Bloomberg News, joining us from our London studios. And it really is just, you know, the mess deepens. And and again, it seems like perhaps uh, the read through in markets is that this could move closer to avoiding a no-deal Brexit because Boris Johnson uh, seemed dead set on that, right? I mean, that's sort of the I'm still holding logic. out for the second referendum. I'm sticking with to my my guns there, but I don't think so. You you keep you keep doing that yes. meanwhile. Uh, An increasing focus on the part of both regulators as well as investment managers has been a shift uh, from 
public to private markets where you have more companies waiting longer or perhaps never going public and private markets are growing at a much faster pace. The question being, and this is something the SEC chair, Jay Clayton, has been looking into, how do you open up private markets to uh, mom and pop investors and, and others who want to get a slice of American dynamism at its ground floor? Joining us now, Ken Nguyen, uh, Ken Nguyen, uh, Chief Executive Officer and co-founder of Republic uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios here. Ken, thank you so much for being with us. Can you just give us a sense of how Republic fits into that sort of narrative? Elisa, thank you for having me. Uh, Republic is a full-stack investment platform focusing on private, early-stage companies that are changing how we live and work in the future. So it used to be uh, not lawful for a non-millionaire to invest privately. The law changed about three years ago, and we based on that change to launch Republic. So just give us a sense of kind of how your company's evolved. How many people use your platform? Like how many mm. investors are coming to you saying, hey, we're interested in the private market and, and, and how do you source your deal flow and just kind of how it all plays out? The, on the investor side, uh, we've grown to be about 350,000 uh, investors on the platform. And out of about 10,000 applications uh, from company looking to raise, we've vetted and made offers to about 200 to launch and so far have successfully raised for about 140 of them. And they ranged from very early stage companies to women founders building the next drone down to companies that have already raised venture capital but want to engage the consumer, the stakeholders. You know, the next Uber and Lyft, the earliest investors got to be the drivers that supported the company. And currently, that's not the case. So I hope that that will change. How do you decide what is likely to be a successful company? We do have deep heritage to uh, the venture space. We came out of AngelList, uh, one of the premier uh, private fundraising platform. So we do apply a venture lens, looking at domain expertise, looking at whether or not the founding team has the maturity, the awareness around corporate governance, uh, and the resilience to build to build that space to win what they're aiming to do, uh, and how related how relatable it is to the mainstream audience. So, what are some of the sectors or types of companies? That that you've been funding recently? When it comes to the crowd, mainstream audience investing, I think it's both marketing and fundraising. So naturally, it's more appealing to B2C, companies that are consumer-focused. But we have had success raising over a million dollars for very early-stage B2B companies as well. One concern, I mean, there are a number of concerns in opening up private markets or certainly the venture capital stage to mom and pop investors. But one is uh, liquidity, the idea that you can invest in something, but you can't take your money out. and You got to wait <laughs> uh, and pray that your investment's going to pay off. So, you know, how do you sort of address that issue? For sure. The, the fact that private investing is illiquid and highly risky is something that you got to make sure that the investing public is aware of. But I view it as like an asset class, meaning if you're going to put away some money that you don't need right away, but may need it in 20 years or for your children, uh, private investing may be a part that you should consider. Well, but if you're investing, let's say, in an equity, it's basically an equity infusion of these nascent companies. Companies, I just have to wonder, what's your cash out time frame? I mean, is it just an IPO or is it just that it gets big enough that you can 
how, how do you how do you monetize? It used to be five to six years. That is, un, unless and until the companies gets acquired or go IPO. But nowadays, you are seeing secondary market being built. Uh, equity date, equi- equity zen, equity date, and Republic itself will have plans for a secondary platform in the future so that people will have you know, more ways to, to get out to liquidate. 2019 has been a year we've had some very high profile IPOs, a lot of tech IPOs, uh, Uber, Lyft, and some others uh, that uh, haven't done well and kind of surprised the market with how poorly they've done. And now we're, I guess the next in the line is is WeWork, and it's been very controversial mm-hmm. because in part because of the valuation differential we've seen between the private market, $47 billion that SoftBank recently funded at, and what appears to be the range in the public market of 10 to $15 billion, is that, does that concern you about, gee, maybe the valuations in the private market world are just too frothy at this moment? In fact, Paul, I think it highlights the value proposition of people being able to invest earlier. When you allow people to invest $100, $50 in a company, you know, one or two years out since inception, if and when the company succeeds, the potential return can be 100x or in some cases over 1,000x. They may not, and you may lose everything. But that ability to invest early up until now, most people are not even aware of it. And the fact that companies take longer, much longer to go IPO now means that much of the return, the wealth, the generation, the wealth generation potential already occurred during the private stage, meaning that those who invest after a company has gone IPO typically holds the, the tail end of the bat. So if there is, let's say, uh, taking this sort of out to its logical uh, conclusion here, if there is a robust secondary market created for private investments and you have mom and pop investors that can get in, what's the difference between that private market and a public market? The difference would be that what we're aiming to do is to bring the private market public so that it resembles more of what the laws and the ecosystem intended to be back in the 60s and 70s. Back when company went IPO at 50 million, 100 million, Google went IPO at a relatively low price and then rise, same with Amazon. But nowadays, the private market is no longer accessible and the public market is also not no longer attractive. So we're aiming to make the public market or the private market public again. Ken Wynn, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate this. Very interesting. Ken Wynn's the chief executive officer and co-founder of Republic, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, uh, which, uh, you know, again, it just kind of brings up an issue, which I think is, which Ken highlighted a little bit, is some of the valuation questions that are now being brought up uh, by some of these higher profile, bigger deals. And as Ken mentions, you know, a lot of these companies are staying private longer. Maybe some of that that upside is being, uh, it's not available for the public market. But this is so fascinating, right? Because this has been going on for a long time and you've seen record amounts of money going into private and venture funds. And and you just have to wonder uh, at what point these markets are going to challenge some of the sort of parameters of public markets saying they're not fitting the bill in some way, which is the reason why everyone's going to these other markets. I mean, there are a (laughs) lot of really good questions here. Fascinating Exactly, a lot for the SEC to pay attention to. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.